Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Welcome to our Good Friday service. Uh, for those of you who, who might not know who I am, I'm a bit of a new face here in, in Agassiz. My name is Jonathan, and I am actually our, our promontory campus pastor, and uh, it is a huge uh, privilege and a pleasure to, to be here and to be able to speak this morning uh, on Good Friday. Now, just as we get started, I know there, there's a bunch of kids in the room, so kids, this is for you just as we get going. Uh, if you didn't notice, there are activity sheets at the far side. You can grab one of those, and... If you do, and you fill it out, and you go through it, we're going to talk about a bunch of people that Jesus is talking to. If you actually want to start drawing some pictures of them, what you can do is bring that to Pastor Eldon after the service, and he has prizes for you. So there you go. It's candy. It's going to be wonderful. There you go. That's your incentive to pay attention to what we're talking about, uh, but also to be able to enjoy as we go through the Word of God. Well, we, we've heard our, our sermon passage this morning, and uh, if you have been here with us at Central for the past little while, we have been walking through the book of Luke. We have been slowly going through uh, Luke's gospel, starting when Jesus first turns his face towards Jerusalem, when he, he decides, now I am going to Jerusalem, and he knows what it's going to cost. Last week, we, we looked at the triumphal entry, right? Jesus enters into Jerusalem finally to, to crowds cheering and welcoming him there, riding in on, on a donkey as this sort of new Messiah king, and everyone is astounded at the things that are happening. In fact, Luke tells us the very first thing Jesus does when he gets into Jerusalem is he goes up to the temple and he clears the place out. There was a bunch of money changers and, and markets that they were trying to sell things in the temple, and Jesus walks in and he clears the temple. And I mean, everyone's expectations at this point are, are through the roof about what this man, Jesus, is going to do. Everyone's saying he's going to be a new king, and here he is clearing out the temple, getting it ready so people can worship there. But of course, if you know the story, not everyone is happy. Right, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they're, they're, they're starting to get more and more upset. The more and more Jesus is doing, the tension is starting to build higher and higher, and they want to be able to arrest him. But, but what can you do when, when if you tried to actually arrest Jesus, all the crowds would revolt around him until finally Judas comes into the picture? Right, Judas enters the picture, one of Jesus' disciples meets with the Pharisees and the chief priests and says, I'll, I'll tell you where he is so you can arrest him in the middle of the night. And Thursday night, that's exactly what happens. Judas leads a group of soldiers to go find Jesus when no one else is watching and arrest him and bring him before a, a, a mock trial. They lead him away, and in the middle of the night, this council happens when no one can see what they're doing, and they bring in false witness after false witness to testify about all the things that, that Jesus supposedly have done, and finally, they're, they're so furious and whipped into a frenzy, they say, all right, we're going to have to put him to death. His disciples that have followed him around for three years have all scattered. In fact, Peter denying he's even met Jesus. They deliver him over to Pilate because they're not able to actually put him to death. And Pilate has him beaten and, and flogged and, and then says, well, but I find nothing wrong with him. Jesus never answered all the accusations that were brought against him. Jesus simply said nothing. 
So Pilate hands him over to Herod. Herod says, this man's innocent. He isn't saying anything. Hands him back to Pilate. Pilate finally returns to the crowd and says, look, I can release one of two men. Here's Barabbas, a a murderer, an insurrectionist, and here is Jesus. And they say, give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. And so finally, Pilate orders him to be crucified. And it's only at this point in all the things that have happened really since, since late Thursday night, Jesus hasn't said anything. He hasn't been speaking amidst all the, the, the trials and the people who have been accusing him of things. Jesus hasn't said much of anything until now. Now that he's been ordered to be executed, Jesus is going to speak four times. Four different sayings in our passage here uh, that we're going to look at. Jesus speaks to different people or, or groups. And each time he does, he is showing us why these things are happening. He's showing us really the the grace that he is intending to give and and how the fact that he is being crucified is not an accident. It's it's always been the plan from the very beginning. He's going to speak first to those who mourn, then to his enemies, to the repentant, and finally he's going to speak to his father. And each time we see more and more the heart of Jesus as he pours out grace for us. So if you have a Bible, I know you may not on on a Good Friday service, but I'll invite you to open Luke chapter 23 is where we're going to be. You can follow along, but first we're just going to simply look at, at what Jesus says to those who mourn. We pick up the story in verse 26, and we meet a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene. He's, he's been co-opted to carry Jesus' cross. Jesus, having you know, stayed up all night, he's been beaten, he's been flogged, and now he is too weak to physically actually carry a, a beam of wood any further. So this man is co-opted and said, all right, you're going to carry it for Jesus. And as this is taking place, people are starting to notice what has happened. In the middle of the night, suddenly Jesus is now being executed. And so the, this crowd is gathering around and, and all manner of people are weeping and wailing to see Jesus like this, right? Luke tells us a crowd of women finds him, these faithful women who, who despite the fact that Jesus has been condemned as a criminal, actually show an incredible amount of faith that they're still willing to be associated with him. Peter ran away before Jesus was even condemned. Here these women, even after Jesus has been sentenced to be executed, is willing to come and stand alongside him. Yet it's what Jesus says I I find so incredible. Verse 28 we read, But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me but weep for yourselves and for your children. You know, of all the things that Jesus could have said, this is not really what I would have expected. Shouldn't they be weeping for Jesus? Isn't this exactly the thing you should be doing? Mourning over what is happening, and yet Jesus is going to turn this around. He continues on, he says, For behold, the days are coming when they'll say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. They'll be, uh, begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus here is quoting from a prophecy in Hosea, Hosea chapter 10. And God is warning the people of Israel about this coming judgment that is going to fall on them because of their sins. It's a warning about how terrible it would be to experience that kind of judgment. And so Jesus turns to these women and says, that's what you ought to be weeping about. 
In fact, if you have been with us throughout this series, we've seen Jesus has already been telling his disciples that, in fact, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. AD 70, that's, that's when that takes place. Jesus is getting them, that, them ready. But really, what he's doing is he's pointing to a bigger picture that's coming. He's wanting to reorient what they're actually mourning over. He says, don't, don't mourn for me that, 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 these, uh, that, that I'm suffering in this moment. What you ought to be mourning about is the reality that God's judgment is coming against sin. That's actually what should worry you most. In fact, I'd argue that's what Jesus is most worried about at this particular mo- moment. And so when we come to Good Friday, when we come to the cross, it's not a call to, to mourn over the graphic nature of what happens. Certainly, it is terrible in just the, the physical things that Jesus goes through, but, but ultimately, that's not what we're called to focus and even mourn over. What we're called to see is the mourning over sin. What does it actually cost? And yet, I think even in that moment, we're, we're meant to hear, we're meant to hear the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The comfort for those who mourn over their sin is exactly what Jesus is in the process of doing right now. Jesus is the one who's going to deal with that divine wrath that is coming against sin. It's going to fall on him In fact, he will receive God's judgment in this moment. But the question we're we're begged to ask is why? Why is it that that Jesus is the one who's going to deal with God's wrath? And so Jesus is going to speak again. They lead him outside of the city and they bring him to a place they've already christened the skull It's where they've clearly already done a whole bunch of of crucifixions. It was well known for this. And so they lead him out and there they nail him to the cross and they put two criminals on either side of him. And as this begins, this this scene unfolds, people start gathering around and they're there to to enjoy the spectacle, to, to mock and to insult these people hanging on the cross. And so they begin to insult and jeer at Jesus. Right? They say, look, if you're a king, come off. Lead your people. If you're supposed to be the king of the Jews, if you're supposed to be able to save people, why don't you start with yourself? In fact, the soldiers at the bottom of the cross have begun to gamble over his final possession, his clothes. And so Jesus is going to speak again, but this time it's about his enemies. Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus doesn't yell back at them. He doesn't try and insult them. He doesn't try and curse them. He's not even trying to to justify or defend himself. Rather, he looks at those who are mocking and attacking him, and his only prayer is, Father, forgive them. He goes to deal with the wrath of God. Why? For his enemies. Jesus has gone there for them, for the very people who thought it was a good idea to nail him to that cross. Jesus was there to forgive them. And again, you you might ask the question, but why? And I think Paul gives us the answer, Romans. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Why did Jesus go to the cross? It was because before we ever loved him, he loved us. Jesus goes to the cross and he speaks one sentence about those who would mock and attack him and it is a a prayer and an invitation to forgiveness. An open invitation for all who would come to him. And don't mistake, that's not simply Jesus talking to the people who are there at that moment, at that cross. This is an open invitation for everyone who has sinned for everyone who has fallen short of God's standard of righteousness, which is everyone. Jesus gives an open invitation to come to him for forgiveness. So what would Jesus speak to his enemies? He prays, forgive them. And so Jesus speaks to those who mourn. He speaks to his enemies, and then he speaks to the repentant. All right, in the midst of this crowd mocking him, there is one voice that isn't mocking. In fact, it comes from the most unlikely place imaginable. It comes from the criminal beside him. The two criminals begin to talk. One begins to, to, to mock and jeer at Jesus and try and you know, taunt him even further, even while he is hanging on the cross. The other looks at him and says, what are you doing? Verse 40, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. This criminal beside Jesus understands something incredible. In fact, I'm going to argue that that he understands Jesus in some ways better than his own disciples do, at least at this point. See, he recognizes two things. One, he's there because he deserved it. He's not trying to get himself out. He recognizes, look, what's happening to me is because I did things, and and actually, this is a just punishment for what I have done. We're not told exactly what he has done. But he recognizes, "I, I don't deserve to continue on. But Jesus, on the other hand, he is innocent. He has not done anything wrong. And so he asks Jesus for just one thing. Verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard this this story before. You've probably heard this same sentence before, but, but don't pass it by quickly. I'm going to argue this is one of the most profound declarations of faith in both the death and the resurrection of Jesus that we find in our Bibles. Consider for just a moment what this criminal would have seen. He would have looked over beside him and he would have seen Jesus nailed to the cross, beaten, bloody, and suffocating. And he looked over at Jesus and he said, I know this isn't the end for you. You are going to come into the kingdom. In fact, it's your kingdom that you will come into. I know that you will yet live again. And so Jesus, he asks him for one thing. Would you please remember me? I'm going to say that's one of the most incredible declarations. Because he doesn't try and and ask... uh, 
Or he doesn't try and give a reason, a defense for, for why he would ask for this. He doesn't try and say, you know, I, I, I was accused wrongly or, or I've done a lot of other good things. Please, I, I, I don't deserve this. No, he's already gotten rid of all of those excuses. He said, I did deserve this. And so what does he ask? He asks that Jesus would remember him and he has nothing to base that request on but the mercy of Jesus Christ. He has nothing else. He's not claiming anything for himself. He can't. He's a condemned criminal by his own mouth. But what he looks over and he sees and he says, you're not done and so please forgive me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looks over at this repentant criminal and says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. See, the answer the cross brings to every repentant sinner that trusts in Jesus is yes. Jesus does bring forgiveness. Yes, Jesus will remember you. In fact, Paul writes in the book of Romans, he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This criminal believed that Jesus would rise again and he was saved on the spot. He would enter into God's presence washed and cleaned because of what Jesus did. His sins would fall on Jesus, not on his own head. This is what it looks like to trust in Jesus. See, do you trust in him like that? See, I think this story helps us so, so very clearly to to avoid two big pitfalls that we can fall into. The one is to think that we have to be good enough in order to come to Jesus, in order to trust in him, and yet the criminal had, had outright declared, I have nothing. We don't have to have any sort of good works in order to come to Jesus. Actually, we just need to come, repent of our sins and trust in him. And on the other hand, we cannot say then, well, I was good enough that God saved me. I was clever enough. I figured it out enough. No, none of those things work. We are saved by faith alone. As we come to the cross, as Jesus speaks to someone who all he could do, he could offer nothing of Jesus in the future and he could offer nothing from his past that would defend his desire to be with Jesus. And yet Jesus says, you are saved by faith alone. There is nothing that we bring but cling to Jesus. His death and his resurrection we're going to celebrate on Sunday. This criminal repented, trusted in Jesus, and he was saved. And so Jesus has only one sentence left to speak on the cross, and that is to his father. As Friday continued to unfold and Jesus is, is, is hanging on the cross, Luke tells us that, that the sky grows dark Right? From, from noon till about 3 p.m., the sky is just pitch black as if creation itself is mourning the one who is dying. And for those three hours, we, we find the Father's wrath poured out upon the Son until finally the curtain of the temple is torn in two. The curtain that, that separated the presence of God from being with the people, that, that, that protected the, the sinful people from being in the presence of a holy God that acted as as a barrier, as one author put it, a giant keep out sign. 
torn top to bottom. It wasn't needed any longer. God's wrath was dealt with. And after this, we read verse 46, Jesus, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus' work was accomplished, and he entrusted himself into the hands of the Father. You know, sometimes we we think about Jesus and the Father almost sort of breaking and going in different ways at this moment, and yet that's not really what's happening In fact, what's happening here is that the Father is welcoming the Son back with open arms, having fulfilled and accomplished everything that he intended. Jesus here is quoting from Psalm 31. It says, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. It's not a hopeless psalm. It's not not the, the cry of a tragic, defeated hero. This is the words of the successful Savior who has accomplished exactly what he had intended. It's the cry of redemption. For all who would trust in Jesus, it is accomplished, and the Father welcomes him home. Verse 47, we read, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Right, the centurion, this, this Roman, probably speaking far better than he knows, but he's right. Jesus was innocent. He was the only innocent man who had ever, live and, li- had ever lived and died in the place of sinners like us. So what else is there to do but praise God? That's, that's where we end. Good Friday ends actually with praise. Mourning, yes. But ultimately, it is the celebration of what Jesus has accomplished, what he has done. And as Jesus says his final words on the cross, it is not hopeless indignation nor loss. It is the completion of his work. Salvation is accomplished, completed, finished. For all those who trust in him, salvation is given. And each sentence Jesus utters points us to what he is doing on the cross. We're called to mourn over our sin as he offers forgiveness to his enemies, to trust in his death because the Father has accepted his sacrifice and salvation is accomplished. This is the reason we call the very worst Friday good, because Jesus died for us. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Father, as we remember what it is that happened on this Friday some 2,000 years ago, Lord, we, we confess that we have not deserved the love that you poured out for us. Father, that you would care for your enemies, for sinners who have not sought after you, who haven't done enough to deserve or earn your praise. Father, we have nothing to bring of ourselves, but we cling to what Jesus has accomplished. Father, we thank you for the cross. We praise you for your goodness that you have seen us and cared enough about us to send Jesus to die in the place to take the punishment for our sins. Father, thank you for that. I, I pray, would we trust in, your, in, in Jesus' sacrifice and in that alone? Father, that we would not try and do anything of ourselves, that we would not build ourselves up with pride, but that we would humbly accept and receive the gift that you have given. 
And Father, would we turn it around and praise your name for all that you have done to give you all the glory to which you are owed. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, as we remember the sacrifice that Jesus gave, we're going to take part in communion together. So I'll invite you, if you have uh, the communion elements, you can take them out. You can begin to actually open them up. There's a couple layers. You can open them already. But the Lord's Supper is ultimately the reminder of what Jesus has done on the cross. It's the reminder of his body that was given for us, his blood that was shed in our place. But ultimately, the Lord's Supper is not just something that we remember, it's something we participate in. It's something we actually do together. It's an external symbol of an internal reality. And so to participate in communion is, is declaring to, to God and, and to those around us that you've died to your sin, that you've repented, done away with it, and that your life is seeking to follow after him. And so this morning, as, as we reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus has given, we're, we're going to take a few moments just here in, in silence. And my encouragement to you is to, to reflect on what Jesus has done, but also to take that time to inspect yourself, to inspect your heart, confess any unconfessed sins before God, that we may be able to go and follow him as we participate in this together. So let's take a few moments and simply pray.